Romans chapter 8, verse 28. This is what the Word of God has to say. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. So to my children's chagrin, one of the things that I often do on this date in the calendar, on July the 4th, is when we're having our family celebration, maybe gathered around lunch or supper on this day, I pull out uh, a copy of the Declaration of Independence. Oh, they love this part. And I say, before we're going to eat lunch, before we're going to eat supper, we're going to read the Declaration of Independence. And they always ask, how long is it going to be? And I say, well, it depends on how much you complain, but I'm going to read it either slow or fast, but we're going to read it. And, I, and we do. We, we read the Declaration of Independence. If you've not done that in, in recent days, if it's been since you were in school, you ought to pull it out. You can Google it and find lots of uh, copies of it. You don't have to read it in its original pen. That's pretty hard indeed. But read the, the Declaration of Independence. It is a fascinating document to me. Addressed to the King of Great Britain, among other things, it declares that they are no longer going to be allegiant to the king of England or to the sovereign state of Britain. Those were incendiary words in that moment. Those men who signed that document understood that when they put their, their names under that document, they were signing up for trouble. But in Gwinnett, Lyman Hall and George Walton and 53 other uh, men signed their names to that document. And when they did, they understood that they were likely um, going to suffer a consequence that may take everything they had, including their own lives. In fact, if you read the history of those who signed the Declaration of Independence, you know that many of them paid a very, very high cost. Now, it is true and we need to be honest about this, that the founding fathers, that many of the founding fathers held religious views that were not faithful to a biblical understanding and the testimony of Scripture. Many of them were deists. Some of them were universalists. Not all, but, but many were. However errant their theology may have been, I it, do think it is right to say that all of them lived in a cultural context in which they saw the world through a biblical worldview. This worldview gave understanding to their language, particularly the very last line of the Declaration. I want to read it to you this morning. The last line of the Declaration reads this way. It says, And for the support of this Declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. We live in a very different context today. In fact, today it's common to hear people speak not of divine providence or even of God. Today the more common phrase to hear is people speaking about the universe. 
Now, if you're not aware of this, start paying attention, and you'll hear it everywhere. You'll hear it in commercials. You'll hear it in common speech. People will speak about the universe as some force that is influencing, that is controlling their lives, just to kind of get a um, uh, sort of a sampling of what some are saying. I just went on Twitter and, and searched the universe. Here's what some people were saying yesterday. When you meet the universe halfway, it'll work hard to bring in, uh, bring in all that you ask for. Someone else said, trust in the universe when there is a change in your life. Change means something greater is coming. And another said, I hope the universe rewards you with happiness. Now, friends, when I read that and when I hear that phraseology in our common vernacular today, it breaks my heart. Because I recognize in that that as our culture has abandoned biblical truth, as our culture has disassociated themselves with an understanding of truth, even as they proudly proclaim they believe nothing, you hear in their speech a desperate desire and I think a right recognition that something is out there that is, uh, has authority and power over their lives. G.K. Chesterton is credited with saying, when men stop believing in God, they don't believe in nothing. They believe in anything. And today, our world around us is putting their hope, their trust, and their lives in the impersonal, ambiguous universe. Friends, the Bible does not teach that we are subject to the random whims of an impersonal, random universe. The Bible teaches that God created the world and is actively involved in the working out of his eternal will in the world and among his creation. This is the idea of divine providence. You might... You might define divine providence as that God is working for us. From a Hebrew understanding, it is literally mean that God sees or he is seeing to his will. So when Paul, writing to the Romans in, in chapter 8, declares this amazing truth, he is declaring that God is actively working out all things for good for those who are called according to his purpose. He's talking about divine providence, that God is actively working in our lives, in the world in general, to bring about his will and his work among us. And listen, if you don't understand anything I say for the rest of the sermon today, hear this truth. That's a pretty good word, that we're not dependent upon some random, obscure, ambiguous universe that might do something toward our favor. No, we rest in the knowledge that the God who created all things personally knows us and is intimately working for us and with us for our good. So I want to talk this morning about divine providence, and I want to speak about it in, in two ways. Number one, I want to speak about what it means that God is actively working. 
I want to push against this false idea, this secular idea that we're in a world that God is disengaged from. No, the Bible is very clear on this. That God is actively working in this world, in our lives, in this church, in this land, in the nations, and everything else. God is participating and actively working. And then lastly, I want to speak about what it means to be chosen with purpose. In fact, I would even say chosen on purpose and with purpose. In other words, you're not here today by chance. But let's begin with God is actively working. Paul says it this way in verse 28. He says, for those who love God, all things work together for good. What he means by that is that God is working out his will among us. Now, in the verses that follow, Paul declares that God foreknew, that he predestined, that he called, that he justified, and he glorified those that he calls. And in all these things, God is not passively watching. God is not passively observing. No, to understand anything that Paul says in, the, in, in, the, in these verses is to understand that God is actively participating. He is actively working. He's not watching from a distance. He's involved and active with us. In all these things, God is actively working to bring about his will. One commentator wrote, he says, as Paul made clear earlier in the verse, it is God's providential power and will, not a natural synergism of, of circumstances and events in our lives that causes them to work together for good. No, this is God actively working for our good. The testimony of Jesus and the testimony of the cross is not a testimony of being disinterested. I mean, what does the Bible declare about Jesus? That he is God with us. He is Emmanuel. That's not disinterested. That's not disconnected. That is God stepping out of the glory and perfection of heaven into the muck and mire of this world to know all of the difficulties and sufferings of this world, to walk alongside of us perfect, but knowing all of our suffering that he might die for us. That's pretty personal. And be put in the grave. That's pretty personal. And rise again that we might be with him in eternity. That's all personally working out the work of good and the of the gospel of salvation in this world and amongst our lives. The testimony of Jesus and the testimony of the cross is a testimony of intimate concern. Now, the secularists theorize that if there is a God, that he must be impersonal, that he must be uninterested, that he must be disengaged. And this would be what a deist might say, or maybe an agnostic might claim. They might concede, okay, we, we recognize that there's some, there's some creative um, identity in creation that testifies to a creator. They, they, they might concede, okay, we, we, we get that there's divine purpose in how things work and, and all of those things, but then they, then they say, but, but we deny that God cares anything about what's happening today. He's disengaged. He's impersonal. In fact, you may have even heard it described as like a watchmaker who makes the watch and sets it in motion and then lets it go. Listen to me very carefully. That theory, that teaching is in direct, complete 
opposition to the testimony of Scripture. The Bible begins with, in the beginning, God created. Pretty intimate. You read all the way through the law, God is walking with his people, meeting with Moses on the mountain, giving his law that his people might know his holiness. You read through the Old Testament prophets and how they speak of how God coming and speaking through them that his people might hear his word. You read the, the Old Testament histories of the rise and fall of nations, and the beauty of that is you see God working not only through the, 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 the people of Israel and through the judges and through the kings, but you even see God using pagan kings to bring about his will. All of that, all the testimony, the history of, of, of the Old Testament is a testimony of the providence of God working his will out through this world. And then you get to the, old, to the New Testament. Oh, you get to the New Testament and you get the beautiful testimony of God himself, Emmanuel, coming to live among us. And then when you get to the, to the, to the letters of the early church, you, you read of how God is working to bring about his will, to preserve his church, to preserve his, his word. And then even when you get to the great revelation of John, and you see how God is going to bring about all things to the fulfillment of his will. And there is nowhere between the first verse of Genesis to the amen of Revelation where at any point God disengages or does not care. From the beginning into eternity upon eternity, God is connected, actively working. The Bible declares that God knows his children, that he is actively working in their lives, that he's actively working to bring about his will. Now, there is one limiter to this, and I want you to hear it very carefully, because if you're not careful, you'll read this verse and you'll apply it as if it's sort of a, a blanket promise of blessing to all. And that's not true, because listen to the context. It, it, God is working for those who are his. In fact, Paul says it this way in verse 28. Likewise, uh, excuse me, in verse 28, he says, um, and, and we know that for those who what? who love God. In other words, what he's saying here applies to those who love God. One commentator wrote, he said, the only qualification in the marvelous promise of this verse has to do with the recipients. It is solely for his children that God promises to work everything for good. Paul describes the recipients of this promise as those who love God. Now, living in a cultural context where many profess to love God, this is a bit difficult for us to rightly divide. If you go up and down the street of Waycross, Georgia today, and you ask the random st uh, stranger, do you believe in God? Most of them will say yes. And if you ask them, well, do you love God? Most of them will probably say yes. Whether they do or not, they know that's the right answer, and so they will say yes. But friends, loving God is not something that is just declared without evidence. Loving God is not the same as loosely identifying with a, with a church or a church culture. Loving God is the response of broken sinners who know what grace they have received in salvation and who love God's word, love God's church, love God's people, and love God's will. Loving God is testified in how you respond to the grace of God in your life. Couldn't help but think of the old gospel song that declares if you don't, you don't love God if you don't love your neighbor. In other words, if there's no evidence of the gospel of grace working its way out in your life, then the testimony of your mouth means nothing. 
With precious and precise boldness, the Bible declares that those who love God, who are God's children, for them he is actively working for their good or their blessing. And here is the great hope of divine providence. In this room, are you suffering today? You woke up this morning and today is worse than yesterday? Then the truth for you is that God is, knows your suffering and is working all things, even your suffering, for good. Amen, indeed. Are you depressed? Some of you are. You don't know why, but it can be sunny and bright outside, but inside your heart and mind, you are brought low. Oh, you wish you'd be set free from that. But dear friends, the testimony of God actively working in our lives means that God knows your heart, he knows your mind, and even in your depression, he is working all things for good. Indeed, amen. Are you oppressed today? Maybe we don't know this one very well because of the blessings that we've known. But we can certainly appreciate that there are many around the globe today that because of the name of Jesus, they are knowing real threats to their lives and real oppression. And the good word of this, word, of this testimony of God's providential care for us is that God knows it. And he is working all things, even our oppression, for good. If you are his, you are not struggling, you are not suffering alone. Somebody say amen like you know it. He knows you, he loves you, and he is actively working for your good. I want to tell you something. That is a good word to declare. Not only is he working for our blessing, but he is working for our good. And I want to press into that word good. Jesus made clear in Mark chapter 10 that no one is good except God alone. Somebody had called him a good teacher, and so he pushed back against that phrase. And he said, what do you mean, good teacher? No one is good except God alone. He was recapturing the meaning of the word good. What God means when he uses the word good is not something that we, can, we, we, we think is better than something else in comparison. And when God uses the word good, he doesn't mean something that we prefer or we like amongst other things that we prefer and we like. What, when God says he, something is good, what he means by that is it is perfect and holy without blemish. So when God created the heavens and the earth, what did he say about it? They are good. When he created the animals and the, the birds of the air and the fish in the sea, he declared that they were good. By the way, when he created man, what did he say about man? Very good. The only thing that takes the good out of good is sin. The whole testimony of Scripture is that God is working his redemptive plan to take what sin sullied and broke and make it good again. 
And so the Bible says, Paul declares, that he is working for our good. What he's saying there is much more than just nice things will come your way. That word literally means pertaining to having the proper characteristics or performing the expected function in a fully satisfactory way. In other words, working out for our good meaning, for our perfection, for as we were created to be. God is working for your good according to his perfect will. In your suffering, in your depression, in your hardship, in your need, in your grief, in your everything, God is working in your life to bring about his perfection, his sanctification, his glorification in your life. Oh, friends, when you read this verse, don't cheapen it to mean good in the context of something nice. Always understand this with the full weight of the word. He is working out his good according to his definition of perfection. Now, there's one other thing in this passage that I want you to see, and that is that you were chosen with purpose. And so, in the beginning of verse 28, he says, For we know that, that, that uh, for those who love God, all things work together uh, all things work together for good. So we, we understand the limiting context of, the, uh, of who this applies to are those who love God. With that in mind, he says, for those who are called according to his purpose. And so even in the reply of understanding that we're, we're speaking about those who are God's, God's children, Paul references again and reminds us again that those who love God don't love God by chance not even by their own intention. They love God because of his purposeful choosing in their life. Dear friends, listen to me. This is a glorious truth. God chose you. He chose you. Paul expands the understanding of divine providence beyond actively working to actively choosing. This becomes the foundation on which he confidently declares in verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Oh, that's a triumphant statement, is it not? But lean into that statement. When the whole world comes against you, the Bible declares if God is for us, who can be against us? He's saying that on the foundation, God chose me. He intentionally chose me out of the foundations of the world. Before the foundations of the world, God intentionally, actively chose me. And if God of all creation chose me, then what powers to the things of this world can bring against me? Oh, dear friends, what a wonderful truth. God's active participation in the life of a believer started with calling them to himself. Sinful men do not seek after a righteous God. Rebellious sinners do not desire to obey God's will and word. In our sin and rebellion, God called us to himself actively, purposefully, and intentionally. All those who come to salvation in Jesus come because he actively sought you out, called you to himself, and revealed his truth to you. God actively chose you for himself. And dear friends, we declare with that that not only did he choose you, but he has chosen you with purpose. Now, the reason why I'm able to say that is because everything about God is purposeful. Every now and then, this doesn't happen 
often in our house, but every now and then we'll have an opportunity in our house not to have anything on the schedule. Aren't those great days? I mean, you don't want them all the time, but every now and then, isn't it nice just to get up and not have anything to do that day? Now, when you have those days, enjoy them. If you have a lot of those days, thank God for them. Amen? And call me. I'll give you something to do, or I'll bring you a kid to hang out with you all day. All right. But every now and then, you have a day when you don't have anything to do. And and you can just sort of kind of go as you please and take things as it comes. It's not that you're wasting the day, but it's just that you're, you're not necessarily purposely driven. But that's not the way Monday mornings are for you, is it? Now, if you've got to be at work at a particular time, you get up with purpose to get ready on a particular time, to get to where you go. Probably even before you get to work, you're thinking about what you've got to do that day and accomplish that day. Even when you finish your work day, you're, you're thinking about what you didn't get finished and what has to be done the next day, what you might need to do before the next day starts. And everything about your day is purposeful. I want you to hear me very carefully on this. Everything about God is intentional and purposeful. God never spends a moment of eternity, twiddling his thumbs, wondering what he's going to do next. Therefore, because God is a God of purpose, he chose you on purpose. Creation was constructed, fashioned together on purpose and with purpose. I don't know what the smallest element is we've discovered now. It used to be atoms. Now I know we've gone smaller than that. But no matter how small of particles we discover, what we always find is that they function with purpose. With telescopes and other things, we've been able to stare into the vast expanse of the galaxies. And you see those galaxies swirling, and they are functioning with purpose. Because everything that is was created by God who is purposeful. And dear friends, you are called. If you have been called to be a child of God, you are called on purpose and with purpose. And because your calling was an act of God, it is an act of eternal purpose. God intended to call you. He has purposed for you. That's why we say all things are working together for God and according to the eternal will and purpose of God because in his purposeful acting, he has acted to draw you unto himself. Divine providence is a word and a phrase that you will find all the way through. In fact, it is one of the major themes of the writing and thinking of George Washington. He often would ascribe to to divine providence, to God acting on his behalf, things that that allowed him to, to successfully prosecute the war, and then even in the early days of our nation, some things that, if they had gone the other way, would have been very disastrous for our nation, and yet... Those those early leaders saw God's providential hand blessing this nation. So I was was thinking maybe I should use one of those stories to to illustrate for you divine providence, but I, I think in general the testimony of Scripture always stands as a better testimony. And so the greatest, the greatest story of divine providence is it's not found in the history of nations. It's found in the life of Abraham. 
If you're not familiar with Abraham, Abraham lived most of his life wanting children and did not have any. He was an old man. He and his wife, Sarah, both were advanced in age when God came and said to Abraham, I'm going to make you a father of nations, which was an astonishing declaration to a man who was childless. And to make matters a little bit more difficult for Abraham, after that promise, which was a tremendous promise, it was years, years before God fulfilled that promise. We don't have time for all that, but the short of the story is that God did fulfill that promise and gave Abraham and his wife Sarah a son by the name of Isaac. And things must have felt pretty good at that point for Abraham. He had the son. He understood that from that son was going to come the promise of God fulfilled. Somewhere probably in the early, uh, late boyhood, early teenhood of Isaac, God came again to Abraham and made a very upsetting request. He said, I want you to take your son, and I want you to sacrifice him. Now, all of Abraham's hope, all of his expectation of the promise of God was sitting on the shoulders of his son, Isaac. But in obedience, he takes his son, and they go to a mountain by the name of Moriah. And the Bible says that Abraham put the, the wood on Isaac's shoulders for him to carry up the mountain. And Isaac turns to his dad and asks the obvious question, where's the lamb? We've got the wood, got the knife, we've got everything we need, but we don't have the lamb. And Abraham's response to his son is the greatest example of one who is trusting in the providence of God. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. Now, there's something interesting that's happening in that phrase. The Hebrew word for provide there literally means will see. You and I have an English phrase that we use all the time that, that hearkens to this idea. Somebody asks you to, to do something, and you say, so-and-so will see about it. Yes, I'll see about it, meaning we will make it come to fruition. We will take care of it. That's the idea when Abraham says, God will see. It's literally what it means. God will see for himself the Lamb. One writer says about this, he says, God does not simply see as a passive bystander. As God, he is never merely an observer. He is not a passive observer of the world and not a passive uh, predictor of the future. Whatever God, wherever God is looking, God is acting. Abraham and Isaac walked up on that mountain Neither of them had a clue where the lamb was going to come from. But Abraham trusted that God would see to it. My favorite phrase in all of that testimony is when others asked about that, Abraham said, we're going up and we, plural, are going to come back down. 
He didn't know how that was going to happen, but he trusted in divine providence that God was working out his will for his good in that moment. Friends, here's where we are. Here's where we are today. I have no idea, and neither do you, about what tomorrow will bring. It may be that we know prosperity, we know ease, and everything goes our way. But it may be that tomorrow is more difficult than today. It may be that you get a, a, a medical diagnosis that is not good. It may be that your finances fall apart. It may be that one of your children breaks your heart. It could be big things. We could, who knew two years ago there'd be a virus that would turn the world upside down? We don't know. But this is what I do know. God will see to it. God will see to it. And for those who love him, he is working all things out for our good. Pandemics and politics and everything else, God will see to it. So where we must be is we must be people like Abraham walking up on the mountain, the wood on the back of the one whom we had all of our hopes built on, trusting in God's providential care in everything for our